Hello, I'm Kevin Kittle, and you're listening to The Cinema Files. In early April, the Phoenix Film Festival kicked off with a special screening of Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, the latest film about Ted Bundy's life. Just prior to the event, I was part of a roundtable interview with writer-director Joe Berlinger, who also produced the eye-opening Conversations with a Killer, The Bundy Tapes, which is already available on Netflix. Berlinger, who has a notable history in true crime films, discussed with us what makes this movie very different from others about Bundy's life, and the origin of its rather unusual title. Have a listen. You probably heard the news Netflix recently decided to pull the original trailer off for the movie. Did criticism online from people who said it was glamorizing Ted Bundy um, and violence against women in general. How do you feel about that? Um, yeah, I was not a fan of the first trailer, to be honest with you. So, oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, if I must be, if I must be honest, I was not a fan. You know, the people who were uh, responsible for marketing the film prior to its acquisition going into Sundance did a trailer that uh, they thought did the job. Um, I was not that happy with it, so I'm very happy that uh, I got the opportunity to work with Netflix Um pretty closely on the trailer, which was great. You know, I, I've done several things with Netflix now. Tony Robbins, I'm Not Your Guru, and Conversations with the Killer, which is the, you know, the doc series. And they are amazing about working closely with the filmmaker, making sure the tone and, you know, intention of the movie is nicely captured. And I, we, you know, worked together on that trailer. And I think it, you know, instead of focusing on the, on the negative first trailer, I... I would say I'm very happy with this trailer and think it really captures the tone and the spirit of the movie. Um, because as somebody who has spent 25 years doing a lot of real life uh, true crime, um, you know, the last thing this movie is doing is, in my opinion, glamorizing a serial killer. And so some of that criticism, you know, was very personally painful to me because I've spent a lot of time, you know, with doing very meaningful things with my films, uh, wrongful conviction, shining a light on criminal justice reform, um, advocating for victims. I mean, that's, that's a big part of what my film and television work is about. In fact, when people say you're a true crime pioneer, as I've been told because of the paradise lost series, I cringe as much as I embrace that description. The pioneer part I like, that's cool. <laughs> but, the, uh, but the true crime thing, I have a funny relationship with that phrase because I think true crime, just that catchphrase, um, kind of conjures up the image of creating, you know, wallowing in the misery of others for entertainment purposes. And I think if you really look at my filmography, that's the last thing I do. You know, I, whether it's a series for Discovery called Killing Richard Glossop which is about a guy on death row, Richard Glossop, who, you know, is on, has been over two decades on death row and the state has tried to kill him three times and there have been two botched executions. Uh, and I believe he's innocent or whether it's paradise loss or, you know, I've, I take, I take whenever I take a journey into some crime element, there's always a social justice message to my work, including this movie, 
And so the idea that I, in particular, would glorify a serial killer, you know, was very painful to hear. And look, I think it's a very healthy debate. You know, what are the limits of true crime? Is, does true crime take advantage of the victim? Where is the victim, you know, in these, in these, you know, film and television programs? Are we glorifying? Are we giving? I mean, I think it's a healthy debate and important issues, but the first trailer, I think, gave the false impression that the movie had a different tone. And I, I'm very happy with this trailer because I think it really captures the spirit of the movie. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, I've heard you state that the reason for making this film was to inform people about, um, like, not necessarily trusting anyone, especially like because of how they look. Right. And I want to say thank you for that because a lot of people do need to realize that. Yeah. Especially women who are pretty much taught from day one yeah. to be ladylike and kind and stuff yeah. like that. Did you also make it to show, um, to give the audience a reason to to feel sympathy toward Liz? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, just getting to the first point, um, you know, it's as somebody who has spent a long time doing real crime, um, you know, it's been my observation that those, you know, we, we want to think that a serial killer is some bizarre looking social outcast, some creepy guy who you can spot a mile away because that implies that you can somehow avoid that fate because he's easily identifiable. And the enduring lesson of Bundy and why I was uh, uh, you know, preoccupied enough to do both a doc series and a movie is that I think what I've learned is the people who, um, you know, you least expect, uh, and who, you know, are in positions of trust and who, who are the least likely to do such a terrible thing, uh, are the ones who often do the evil in life, whether it's a priest who commits pedophilia and then holds mass the next day, whether it's the, you know, executive suite of Purdue Pharma that tells its sales force to not only repress the research to show OxyContin is addictive, but actually tells them to lie to doctors about it. And we've had 200,000 uh, opioid deaths. Those are people who I'm sure have wonderful friends and art museums that think their, their donations are fantastic and have loving families, but that's compartmentalized evil, you know? just like a serial killer who pretends to be one thing. So the reason I wanted to make these films is my daughters who are of college age, when I called them up and said, I'm thinking of doing this, you know who Ted Bundy is? They had no clue. And I think in this day and age, in an era of catfishing, uh, is that right, catfishing? Yes, right. Uh, um, so I'm a little jet lag, so I apologize. Catfishing, right. So in an era of catfishing or... Uh, you know, the, the newest thing is that Uber, fake Uber drivers come up and, you know, to make sure you check your license plate, by the way, because sometimes people are getting into the wrong car thinking it's, it's an Uber and it's something else. Um, you know, it's, it's a, the, bun, the lessons of Bundy can't be overstated. Some people really need to deserve your trust. The other reason to do the movie is to really understand the experience of the victim, how you become seduced by this kind of psychopath. Because I think people hear, oh, Bundy had a living girlfriend. She must have been an idiot. No, this is, this is, this is the opposite. This is a person who seduced not only Elizabeth Kluffer, and I, 
I don't mean the literal seduction, I mean psychologically seduced Elizabeth Puffer. He also seduced the American media and seduced the legal system. I mean, could you imagine if, uh, have you guys seen the movie? Okay. Could you imagine at the end of uh, a, a murder trial, if this was a person of color, that a judge would say to him, um, hey, you know, I'm sentencing you to death because what you did was extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile, but I have no hard feelings and I wish you would have, uh, you know, practiced law in front of me. You would have been a terrific lawyer. Are, are you kidding me? That just, to me, is so demonstrative of the fact because he was a white male in the 70s, he was given all sorts of breaks because of his demeanor, because of how he looked, because he was a law student, because he was white. Uh, he was given all sorts of uh, freedoms. I mean, in Colorado, I mean, could you imagine if there was a person of color who he wouldn't be shackled at all times in the courtroom wearing an orange jumpsuit? So to me, seeing things through Liz's eyes um, is, is an understanding of how one becomes seduced, how a victim becomes seduced by a psychopath. He, she's lucky. She, he actually, I think, liked her and kept her alive. Um, but it's, it's that same power he had over everybody that I think is, you know, it's a, again, it's a lesson that I want my daughters to know. So, awesome. So, uh, having known both the Ted Bunny dog and the feature film, clearly the dog has to be factual. Is there any pressures while doing a feature role to add anything non-factual and, or even taking liberties? Um, I wouldn't say pressure, um, but the nature of narrative filmmaking, filmmaking is that you have to compress time, that the unfolding of time is not the same as in real life, and you do have to take certain liberties. But I'm very proud of the film that it actually hues very closely to, to real life. Um, you know, but you have to think in a three-act structure. and you know, But I, I wouldn't say pressure. You have to make it entertaining for an audience. Um, truthfully, the biggest, um, probably the biggest issue I struggled with is um, in the memoir that this is based, there's a few times where in the memoir she talks about having found things that made her think twice. Like she found a knife in the glove box of, uh, of his car. They kept separate apartments even though they lived together and in, in his apartment she found a bowl of keys. Like why did he have so many house keys? But these are isolated events that take place, you know, over a seven or eight year period. It's like if you're living with a cheating spouse or an alcoholic spouse or a drug addicted spouse and they claim to be, you know, on the wagon or they claim to not be cheating. You know, you, 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 you have a ability to kind of push that aside over a period of time, you know, and it's only when it reaches a critical mass in real life that when you have an experience like this, then all the clues come together and you're like, oh, right, I should have realized this all along. But in a two-hour movie or an hour and 45-minute movie, the compression of time is so great that if I, within the first act, had Lily find a knife or looking through keys, she would have, she would have, I think, to the audience, looked like an idiot for not catching on. So when you, that was the biggest issue is there were certain things I had to like leave out of her memoir because time is different in a narrative film than it is in real life. And even as it is in a documentary. 
But what is it about these like real crime stories and these like horrible tales of these killings, like particularly Bundy's, that you think like audiences find so interesting? Why do they keep watching different ones over and over again? Yeah, we are in this um, we are in this period where obviously with serial making a murderer, um, my own Paradise Lost series, uh, people seem to have an insatiable appetite for for crime. Um, I think. And in fact, one of the reasons I'm so fascinated with Bundy is that I think Bundy, to me, represents the big bang of our current insatiable appetite for crime. Because uh, Bundy's Florida murder trial was the first time cameras were allowed in the courtroom. Uh, there was this new technology called electronic news gathering. Just a few weeks, not a few weeks, just a few months before Bundy's trial, most news stations were still shooting the day, you know, the evening news on 16 millimeter film. Um, so very, very, you know, coinciding with the growing fascination with Bundy was this new satellite technology, new electronic news gathering, which just kind of pushed its way into the courtroom and the, and the Florida Supreme Court allowed cameras in the courtroom. And I think that was more had a greater impact than people realize because for the first time in our history, serial rape and murder became live entertainment for American television viewers. It was the first time we got to watch something live that was, you know, as sordid as what went on in that trial. And I think that was a, that was an, a precipitating event to where we are today because you can draw a line from the coverage of Bundy's trial, which is the first time cameras were allowed into the courtroom. You can then, 10 years later, when he was being executed, um, there was a new technology called the, the, you know, these mobile satellite trucks, you know, the ubiquitous trucks that 50 of them show up at every crime scene now with the satellite dish. But that technology was just coming into play. And so parked outside of the death house when he was being executed were all these satellite trucks and revelers and party goers and people like wanting to watch the execution. So once again, murder became entertainment for people, both on television and live. And you can trace that line, you know, just a few years later to the O.J. Simpson trial, which now you have the 24-hour news cycle um, and this, this, this need to feed that monster, you know, with stories every day. And that trial became, you know, a huge turning point to where we are today, where we seem to have this insatiable appetite for crime. Why do we have this appetite for crime? I think there's a lot of reasons. First of all, I think, um, you know, ever since, uh, I think we're wired for danger. We want to look because, uh, you know, from the hunter gatherer days when it was safe, sorry, when it was often not safe to leave the cave or wherever you were living, I mean, you're wired to like see what's around the corner. And I think that's part of it. I think part of it is that, you know, I don't, know, I don't know if you have this phrase here, but in New York, when the traffic is backed up because of an accident on the other side of the highway, we call it rubbernecking. You know that phrase yeah. here? Mm -hmm. Sorry. So, you know, I think we're just a nation of rubberneckers. You know, we want to, you know, we slow down to see the car wreck. And part of that is, you know, thank God that's not me or there by the grace of God, it could have been me. So I think that's part of it. Um, but I also think on, on the positive side, there's been a lot of amazing work that you know the good crime stuff 
so it's on Harrigan. I include Paradise Lost as part of it, but Errol Morris's Thin Blue Line, Making a Murderer, Paradise Lost, The Jinx. You know, we've you know we've seen nonfiction storytelling have immediate and dramatic effect on on these cases, and so I think that's part. People are like want to know what the next you know the next. Uh, miscarriage of justice is. So I think there's no one answer, but I think all of those kind of factor into it. Uh, was it your intent from the start to have both the docuseries and the feature, or did one uh, start and inspire and inform the other? Yeah. Uh, I wish I could say that there was some master plan, and I'm this amazing strategician, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to do both of these shows and come out at the same time, and isn't that great? But uh, honestly, it was a lot of coincidence, and, and basically... Uh, in January of 2017, a guy named Stephen Michaud, who wrote this book two decades before called Conversations with a Killer, he recorded all these death row interviews with Bundy, used that as the basis of this book that came out a long time ago. But he reached out to me in January of 2017 and said, um, you know, I have these tapes that this book was because he was a fan of my work and I knew the book as well. He said, I have these tapes that I based the book on that have been sitting in my closet, do you think there's something there? Because there seems to be more and more interest in this kind of programming. And I said, well, there's been a lot of stuff done on Bundy. So let me take a listen. I'll tell you what I think. You know, the bar has to be high because there has been other Bundy stuff. So I got the tapes immediately were captivated by them because, you know, just hearing from him going inside the mind of the killer, I thought was just a fascinating way to tell the story you know, I knew the 30th anniversary was coming up and, and that's, it just seems like a good time to reflect back. I actually have been very, you know, very conscious of this growing trend of true crime and why is that? So as someone who participates in the genre, I thought it'd be interesting to self-reflexively look back at the, what I consider the precipitating event, as I was saying before, as to why there's so much true crime. So I said, yes, I think there's something here pitched it to Netflix and Netflix said, great, let's go do a four part series. So I was doing the series, had no clue that the script existed, that this film was out there, but I was sitting with my agents in California, uh, uh, in April of 2017, just sharing my enthusiasm for how cool this project was turning out. I was giving them an update on stuff, but also saying, Hey, you know, I'd love to try my hand at a scripted movie. And so my agent said, well, you know, there's this script and it's on the Hollywood blacklist. You should take a read. Do you guys know what the Hollywood blacklist is? Okay. So, um, uh, so, uh, I read the script and I said, I love it. Let's, you know, connect me with the producer. So by definition, the Hollywood blacklisted script is a script that a lot of executives like, but they have trouble figuring out how to make it. So to me, getting the script and liking it and talking to the producer was like baby step number one that I thought was going to be a multi-year process. And if, maybe if I'm lucky, five years from now, I'd be doing this movie. Um, so I didn't imagine the two projects would be simultaneous. But uh, so I got on the phone with the producer and I explained why I liked the script, the guy who controlled the rights to it. And it was a much longer conversation than I'm reducing it to, but basically I said, uh, I, I gave him my take on how I would do it. And basically my take was to 
the original script depended upon not knowing it was Bundy until the very end of the movie, which reads well on paper, but I didn't think it was realistic, a realistic approach in this day and age. The moment somebody signs on to do this, they're going to know it's a movie about Ted Bundy. So I, I felt like you had to situate the POV more in Liz's point of view than it was in the script, that you, you can know it's Bundy at the beginning of the film because everyone's going to know, and that it needs to take a much darker journey because the original script was a little more catch me if you can, much more of a lighthearted tone. That's not to criticize the script. The, the bones of the script are very much the same. And I think Michael Worm did an amazing job. And I fell in love with that script, but I tweaked it to make it more realistic, a little darker, and to cop to the fact that it's Bundy at the beginning of the film. So I gave my pitch. The producer said, cool, let's go take it to market. Again, you know, indie movies, and this, despite Zach being in it, this was a true indie movie, not a big budget, financed through foreign sales. Um, and I figured if I'm lucky, I'll be doing this in three years. But just so happened, um, this is now three weeks. The script has been in my life for three weeks. The producer said, yes, let's try it. Um, by the way, Jodie Foster was once a attached to direct the script and it fell apart. Another director was attached to it and it fell apart. So I'm just saying this is a script that's been around and people have tried. But my agent, I'm at CAA, and CAA has a weekly meeting and where they discuss what their clients are doing. And so my agent said, well, Joe is interested in this script. And Zach Efron's agent said, hey, Zach is looking to do something different. You want Zach to take a read. So very coincidental. Um, and so I was asked, do you mind if Zach reads the script? Now, in our business, when somebody at Zach's level uh, reads a script, it's called a reading offer. So it's a very considered decision because, because if Zach, if I say, Zach, read that script, and he says, I want to do it, I'm obligated to hire him. You know, you can't just say, hey, Zach, you want to read the script? Oh, well, I'm not sure I want to use you. He's, you know, there's a certain level of actor where it's a reading offer. So I had to think... Do I want Zach to read the script? Because if he says yes, um, I'm obligated to use him. But I didn't have to think very long because if somebody like Zach was willing to play with his teen heartthrob image in that way, you know, I respect that. And um, it also, as a documentarian, it gives me a little piece of reality to bring into the movie making process. The fact that in real life he has this profile, this teen heartthrob, this, you know, idea that is very similar to what the effect that Bundy had on women. Um, I thought that's a nice piece of reality I could play with. So to make a long story, hopefully shorter, um, I said, yes, read the script. And he read it actually to his credit. Like Again, getting a movie off the ground is a painful process. It takes forever. And so I expect, well, maybe in a month he'll read it. Maybe uh, he was promoting Baywatch at the time. So, uh, you know, maybe in a month he'll watch or he'll read it or, but he read it almost immediately. The agent said, get on the phone. He was promoting Baywatch in Australia. Strangely enough, I was on the skeleton coast of Namibia doing a surfing documentary, another story. So we finally found the time to speak. And we just hit it off. He said the right things. I said the right things. And so with Zach signed on, this is now week four, they decided to take it to Cannes. And by the end of the fifth week, it was a finance movie, which never happens. So now I'm, now I'm stuck with the situation. Oh, my God, I'm in the middle of conversations with a killer for Netflix. And now I've just obligated myself to do the movie. But luckily, 
the start date of the movie pushed a little bit because of Zach's availability. So the documentary was basically shot and was in editing when I started prepping the movie. And the experience of doing both at the same time was great because, you know, you want to be an expert in your subject matter when you direct a movie, but I was really an expert now. So I was really able to guide people in the story, give them archival footage to look at. Every department head during prep, you know, when they needed a photo reference or what did the courtroom look like? We had a whole documentary in New York in the editing phase that we could rely on. So again, total coincidence. And then the fact that they both came out at the same time is also kind of happenstance because originally this movie was supposed to be finished in time to submit to Toronto, but we weren't done. And I, I thought it was more of a Sundance movie, but you can't guarantee that you get into Sundance. Um, but we did. And so on January 24th of this year, which is the first day of Sundance, it also is the date that Netflix released Conversations with the Killer because... Um, that's the 30th anniversary of Bundy's execution. Um, and going into Sundance, it wasn't clear that Netflix was, was going to buy the movie. I mean, Netflix had nothing to do with the production of the movie. We made this independently. But because at Sundance the movie did well and because Conversations with the Killer did well and we had offers from other people, I kept steering this towards Netflix because they did such an amazing job marketing Conversations with the Killer it was like the number one global trend on Twitter, like date, you know, within hours of release. And I just felt that they would, I just felt the two movies together on the same platform uh, would be amazing. So I actually, I was a big voice of pushing it towards Netflix. Anyway, that's the long story. Sorry. I've got to figure out a shorter way to tell that story. <laughs> All right. Thanks for being here, Joe. Sure. The, uh, you do such a great job with Zach and Lily bringing these complex characters to life having them, given them such humanity and also given them like such complexity. With your extensive background, you have all this information that you can share with them. What was that like working with those two actors to bring out such a great performance? Um, that, you know, it was, it was really, uh, I'll focus on those two in particular, but just in general, for whatever reason, just everyone working on this movie felt like it was, you know, we were doing something special. Every cast member were my first choices, which never happens. Um, everyone, you know, just everyone just felt like there was something special here. So despite the dark subject matter, there was a great camaraderie on set. Um, Zach and Lily in particular worked really hard. You know, th these were not easy roles for either of them. Um, both of them are going outside of their comfort zone of what they normally have done in the past. Um, you know, I did a couple of different things, you know, Zach, I, you know, gave him a lot of footage to look at, a lot of archival footage, a lot of proprietary footage that we used in the documentary that's not accessible online. Um, but Lily, I did not want her to see anything. And, and she was at first, she's like, where's my, where's my drive of footage? And I'm like, I don't want you to see anything. I don't want you to don't go on the internet. Don't learn about Ted Bundy. And in fact, the first time she ever saw any graphic imagery was well, right before we shot the hacksaw scene, that's when I pulled her aside and I said, look, this is what this guy did. And so she was able to use that. Um, more importantly to me, the whole film rests upon you believing in their relationship, you know, despite what he did, because I believe that there is one spectrum of human behavior. You know, we want to think that serial killers are, this and of course it's horribly aberrant behavior. I'm not I'm 
I'm not a lightning man. What they did was terrible. Um, but it, it's not, it, it, there's one spectrum of compartmentalization of evil that we all exist on and we all compartmentalize and do bad things in varying degrees. Most of us here, I would hope, our compartmentalization is a little lie here or a little thing here and then we just move on. But as you go down that spectrum, you know, you have that priest who commits pedophilia but is a spiritual leader and holds mass the next day, you know, and he's able to compartmentalize that evil and still play that role. You know, you have the aforementioned executives who, you know, most of the time they're being good guys, but they're repressing, you know, whether whether it's repressing climate change, although I don't want to get into a political discussion here, whether whether it's uh, fossil fuel companies repressing climate change research or Oxycontin or whatever, you know, we all compartmentalize and it gets more evil and evil and I believe Bundy actually was capable of love, which is, you know, a controversial comment, I'm sure. Um, but, and I think he needed and craved normalcy, but he compartmentalized this terrible evil that he did. Um, and so for me, the relationship being real was like the cru- is the crux of the movie because I want the audience to have the same you know, some people have criticized, where's the violence in this film? You're like glossing over his evil. But like to me, the, the, the catalog of killings in a serial killer movie has been done to death. And we live in an age where you can go like this and see the most violent images and the worst degra- degradation to women that you can imagine. Why do I need to populate a movie with that stuff as long as he gets his due at the end of the film? I want what I'm portraying is the seduction of evil and this, you know, and how you can be fooled. And so the key to that was that relationship being real. So that was my big note to them. And I kept hammering home is that this love is real between the two of them and it needs to burn off the screen, this connection between the two. And that was the thing I worked on the most, not because I'm glamorizing a serial killer and want to gloss over it. Just the opposite. I want to show, I want to portray how somebody who's intelligent uh, you know, who had a child, who had a, her whole life in front of her, um, was able to be seduced by a guy who presents to be one thing, but turns out to be another. We've seen throughout human history, and especially in the media age, that for some people, the mere depiction of violence or violent people is not enough to inherently condemn it. Um, when news outlets sensationalize the identity of mass shooters, we often see copycats mass shooters or people attempting to emulate that mass shooter because they are angry or disturbed individuals that see people like them pulling off these horrible things and becoming famous. Um, I was struck by the end of the film when you have a few clips of the actual Ted Bundy that Zac Efron's performance as Ted Bundy seemed even more attractive and charismatic uh, than Ted Bundy appeared to be in real life. Do you think that there's any danger that this film's portrayal of Ted Bundy, I mean, the fact that there's a celebrity, a well-known celebrity playing his role, could inspire anybody to violence because they're looking for fame and looking to be remembered in connection with somebody famous? Uh, it's an excellent question and worthy of debate. Um, I disagree that the real Bundy has more charm than Zach. The point is... I was saying the other way around. Oh, sorry. Exactly. Yes, I, I, well, I, and, and, and I, I reversed it, but I, I got what you said and I 
still disagree. Um, I disagree with the idea that Zach is more charming than than Bundy because what we're talking about is the hold that each you know the hold that Bundy had over people was very clear. I mean, women were coming down. You know, a few select clips. I don't think you can necessarily come to that conclusion. It's it's the it's the whole arc of his life. Women were going down to the Florida trial, convinced he was innocent, or if they're not. If he's not innocent, he's still sexy and there's something about him and I want to be in the same room. I mean, he had that power over people. Um, he s- seduced the judge to allow him to like have free reign of the courtroom. He seduced people in Col- Colorado to allow him to walk free and he, he escaped. So I don't, I don't agree that Bundy is more char- uh, Zach was more charming than Bundy per se, you know. Um, but you raise a good point about copycats, but you know, I, I, it's hard to, it's hard to know where people derive and therefore you can't censor yourself. It's where do people derive their inspiration from? I mean, John Hinckley, you know, killed or attempted to kill the president because, uh, he he was trying to impress Jodie Foster. Should Jodie Foster remove herself from public life? Should any actors remove themselves from public life? The Aurora killings were inspired because of, uh, you know, Batman. So is Batman is a movie, you know, you, you can't, deter- again, it's, it's a word, all of these debates, glamorization, inspiration, all of these things are very healthy and good to debate. But, you know, the moment you start censoring yourself, you know, if this movie was like a gore fest, an irresponsible gore fest, maybe, but it's an intelligent movie that has some real thought behind it and if somebody is inspired to be ted bundy off of this movie then i would argue they would you know a different person would be inspired to do something evil off of any kind of movie so where do you draw the line i don't actually have an answer but i know that i'm not worried that people will be inspired to do something off of this movie in particular because i think it was very responsibly made thank you thank you joe um i uh I really liked all of the performances. I really like the way the story lays out a bunch of cookie crumbs, building the tension. <clears throat> I especially liked the, um, the way that Haley Joel Osmond's character comes in and allows her character to move on without actually moving on. Um, but within all of this, I felt like there was a satire uh, or a satirical nature in the way that we portrayed his charm and the way it was shown in the media and the way he represented the media. Was that intentional or was it part of everybody's performance? Um, The movie is definitely, you know, to call the movie a satire would be an overstatement. I mean, but there are satirical elements to it because I am definitely making a comment on how uh, the media, you know, helped contribute to create this monster um, and that how there were so many opportunities to catch this guy um, that it is being somewhat satirical in, uh, you know, for example, the title of the movie is Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile. It's an absurd title, but you notice the movie doesn't begin with that title. It ends with that title because by the time those words are pronounced, the, the gravity of it is felt. Um, and yet, when I think people see this 
see the poster or see the trailer and go into a movie called, called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Violent, they think they're going to have kind of a good time. And so for me, the truth, what, just like the title of the movie and its meaning is right in front of you. And by the end of the movie, when the title is spoken, it takes on a whole other meaning. To me, the, the question of, of everybody's culpability in allowing a Bundy to flourish is what was being commented upon. And so there are moments where uh, there is some satire because I'm trying to let people know that the truth is often right in front of you. And it's kind of a warning that, you know, especially in this day and age, um, where I think we all live in these curated worlds of Instagram and Facebook, and we all pretend to be something that actually isn't the actual essence of our life, that there is a danger that people can take that to a much greater degree and be dangerous to society. And, you know, the fact that we pushed our way into this courtroom and televised this trial and turned it into entertainment, I'm self-reflexively looking at, you know, a genre that I participate in and what we've, what we've created to the point now we live in these media silos where nobody's talking to each other and, you know, we look for our own confirmation of things. And I think, um, you know, a lot of it has to do with perception and reality and we don't, we don't seem to know the difference. You know, there's, there's been such a blurring of the line between fiction and reality in our society that facts don't seem to matter much. And the fact is Bundy was a ruthless killer and rapist of women. And there were so many opportunities to catch him and everyone gave him a pass because he was white and charming. And so that there is a satirical line to 